Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number 25. In this edition of the show, I'm joined again by my dear friend, Abby Tyler Todd. Abby's fondness for church history makes this a thrilling conversation as we both take a deep dive into some common misconceptions and misunderstandings surrounding the great reformer, Martin Luther. Listen as we wade through these false perceptions and try to see Luther for the man he was, flaws and all. We talk Luther's theology, his successes, his failures, and his legacy. I think you'll greatly benefit from this discussion as we seek to grasp more fully God's gospel of reconciliation as seen in the life and ministry of Martin Luther. Today's show is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which inspires lifelong discipleship and helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. Now for Abby Todd. Abby Tyler, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic, Brad. Thanks for having me. It's good to hear. You're my first returning guest on the Ministry Minded Podcast. So that you yeah, you should feel honored. My goodness. But it's wow. so good to have you. Um, so good to have you, especially I'm really excited about the topic that we have today. Before, before we get into that, so to speak, just uh, catch me up on what's been going on with you and Kelly. And also, I know, uh, because I know that you just uh, recently moved to Georgia, and uh, just tell me how you're doing. Georgia? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think the last time that we spoke, um, at least on the podcast, uh, I believe I was getting ready to move mm-hmm. uh, to Georgia. I had been in view of a call, had preached and done the Baptist thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and since then we've been here four months and, um, it's, we're in Covington, Georgia, and I was called as pastor here. Um, so I was previously youth pastor and now I'm pastor, uh, but I'm actually, um, a campus pastor. Uh, this church was planted about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, and the guy that, uh, planted it, my predecessor actually, uh, uh, has since been called as a missionary to Columbia with the IMB. Hmm. Um, so, uh, very missional focus there. Um, the, the pastor, my, uh, my, I guess my senior pastor, the downtown campus, 
uh, is a Southern grad. Uh, his name's Cody. Um, and Cody extends a lot of, um, uh, I guess I would say a lot of pastoral freedom to me. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously I preach at our campus. Um, and, uh, he and I work well, he's wise beyond his years. He's 37 and, uh, somebody that I respect and, uh, and love. And, and, uh, even though he's an Arkansas fan, um, <laughs> uh, we work well and still learning the multi-site thing. Mm-hmm. Um, gonna be honest. I, I, after four months, I can, after talking to other pastors and doing it, no one seems to have a recipe for how to do multi-site seamless, <laughs> seamlessly. Um, and so it is a work in progress, but there's plenty of grace to go around and it helps to have a senior pastor at the mm-hmm. main campus who, who has a lot of maturity. So all that for say, sometimes I say I'm pastor, sometimes I write campus pastor. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm a, I'm a preacher, I guess, uh, dad, dad, doesn't matter what I am. Dad will still call me a preacher. There you um, go. and, um, so anyway, it's been, it's been awesome. Um, my church is awesome. Uh, yeah, give a little, uh, what's your, what's the name of your church? Just give a plug for it. The church at Haynes Creek. We are in Oxford, Georgia, right across the interstate from Covington, Georgia. Um, we are, a cam- we're a church or a campus, um, um, a church, if you will. We're, we're a church of about, I'd say, um, anywhere from 60 to, to 80 folks, um, on a Sunday, and we're growing, um, a lot of momentum, a lot of great people. We're mostly young couples, if I had to say. Um, and so that's been a blessing, but an even bigger blessing, I guess, um, than that has been the fact that we are old, we're young, we're black, we're white, we're blue collar, we're white collar. Um, you know, Hmm. we've got guys that are, uh, basically that, uh, we've got termite, uh, inspectors at our church. We've got a local superior court judge at our church. Um, Mm. we just, we're rounded out so well. I am so proud of my church, uh, in the sense that, uh, we're just very diverse, but I think even more than that, I I think that we understand that diversity itself is not, um, a guarantee of strength, but I think that we see that diversity, um, prompts us to rally around the gospel, uh, and, and so, uh, anyway, every day of the week I'm doing something, I'm mm. either meeting at a coffee shop or this morning I woke up at six and had, um, Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits with three brothers, <laughs> um, all of whom are younger than I One's 30 ones. I found that out the other day. I'm, I'm old compared to a lot of these guys. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's, uh, I'm the pastor at the church of Haynes Creek. So that's awesome. And, and what are you preaching through right now? Uh, we're finishing the book of Romans. Mm. Um, I am, uh, preaching through actually ahead. Uh, we're not an elder led church, um, yet. Uh, I, I, I will say that I would like us and I believe Cody would like us to one day be there. Um, we're just, that's where we are in life of our church. I, that that's just not something that we feel like God's called us to quite yet. Uh, but I have, uh, three men around me who, uh, I, I call them the shepherding committee. So, uh, in, fu- in functionality, they are, uh, <laughs> elders. It doesn't matter. We're not going to get around names, but, um, and they preach. I have two fantastic preaching, uh, guys around me. Um, all of them can preach, but, uh, I got a guy, his name's Lee, a buddy, a dear brother who preached for me last week. And so I'm finishing up chapter 15 
And then, uh, I'm actually going to, we're going to be finished with Romans in two weeks. Uh, at which time we're going to take a, a three weeks to go through a couple passages in Luke and then start Advent. Um, and then we're probably going to start after Advent, probably start the year, um, probably the gospel of either Matthew or John, I would like, but you know, that's something I also collaborate with, uh, with, uh, Cody at our main campus. So, man, I'm just learning. I, I tell awesome. you, I, I, um, I've been, I haven't been in pastoral ministry very long and I've been youth pastor for three years and now I've got my own, uh, um, local body. And, um, but I, it's like, I'm the guy, but I'm not the guy. And, uh, <laughs> I will say I have, you, you, you really have to submit. I, I, I think there's an advantage to being campus pastor. Or, although I, I will say, uh, I went to the, the weekender, uh, in nine marks weekender at Capitol Hill Baptist with, uh, Mark Dever, um, who knows my name. <coughs> he didn't, he, that, that, I don't think that guy's ever going to remember, ever going to forget my name. First of all, he has a freakish memory. Um, <laughs> but he, he, every time I would see him for the rest of the, tr- for the rest of the, the weekend, uh, and I would advise you, brother, I would, I would, I would, I would encourage you to go to that man. If you ever get a church, you're raising leaders. It is so good. Um, we got to see elders meetings. We got to see membership meetings. We got to see, um, membership classes. I got to watch two excommunications. Mm. Um, and I don't even, and, 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 and they did it in such a biblical loving way. And it's just, it was such a great, but all that to say, um, Mark Dever had asked me my name a couple of times. And every night as I was going to say, see Avi. And I'm like, Mark Dever knows my name. <laughs> um, but the one thing Mark Dever is, does not do, uh, being the, uh, ecclesiological purist that he is, he doesn't do multi-site. Um, he believes that he takes a, he'll, he'll make theological arguments. He'll make scriptural arguments. He'll make the, he'll make Greek arguments. For example, like Ecclesia, he'll say, Abby, there's, you know, there, that's assembly. So he doesn't do multi-service because he would say that's two assemblies. Um, so he, he says, if we get too big and they're landlocked, they're only three blocks from Capitol Hill. Um, if they get too big, they just, they just sprout more churches. In fact, they were sending out a new church to go to Chevrolet, which I believe is in Virginia across the river, uh, when we were there. Uh, so anyway, all that to say, even though Mark Dever would disagree with the multi-site model, I think the multi-site model does offer an opportunity um, for different kinds of people to come together. Um, and it also pastorally, it offers me a 31 year old pastor, an opportunity to lead, but also to submit. Um, I have a, that's a versatile, it's a versatile role. Um, Hmm. and, uh, one that uh, keeps me humble. Um, but it also, um, Cody also encourages me and empowers me to, to lead boldly with the word of God. That's awesome, man. Well, and we're a little bit off topic, but I want to keep going this just cause I'm, I just, I'm excited for you and hearing about your ministry is just exciting to me. So you're four months into this pastorate. Um, and this is probably, um, you know, your typical question, but you know, what's one of the biggest things, that you've learned uh, as now that you're into this pastoral role, what's one of the things that has really stood out to you as you've really uh, stepped into this position? 
Um, this position was unique only in the sense that, um, it, it, I guess in some sense it is true that any pastor you take, um, you, you just have to give it time and you have to, you probably go slower than you thought you would, you would. <laughs> A lot of times, I think for most pastorate or pastoral positions, I think the, the, this, this, this axiom is true. Just get to know your people and take it easy. And I think a lot of churches need that. I think my position is unique because I will, even though that was true in some sense, I had to just get to know my people. I had to hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no leeway at all. I mean, it was, we're, this was a, we're kind of in our embryonic phase still. And, and we're, we're growing. Um, we're bringing in new people. We're forging our own traditions. Um, we're getting to know our new, uh, newcomers and, um, learning how membership works out there and things like that. And so, um, for all that, all that said, it is my natural tendency to, get things done. I'm a doer. Uh, but I think the one thing I've learned is not, I think unconsciously I have kind of partitioned outreach and missions over here and then soul care and shepherding here. Um, and even though they are distinct, obviously, um, if we shepherd our people, well, and you love and love on and pray for and build up and be faithful to the bride and the sheep, the outreach and the missional component of the church will naturally be empowered. Mm. Um, and I don't think we need to, I think a lot of people are missional and they forget to shepherd their people and teach them doctrine. And, um, and, 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 you know, it's, you know, we're going to talk about Martin Luther. Um, what's he say? He says, you know, I sat there and drank Wittenberg beer and the (laughs) word did the work. Mm. Um, and I think that's one thing Mark Dever, uh, kind of, uh, instilled in us about a month ago is he said, he says, love, pray, preach, stay. Hmm. you got to stay, you got to really get a long haul, but let the word do the heavy lifting. And, That's uh, right. um, and I, I think that a lot of pastors can come together and say amen to that. But I think a lot of us segment missions and shepherding. Well, if you shepherd correctly and biblically, uh, the outreach will come. Hmm. I think that's something I've learned because I, I really, one thing I, I'm not patting myself on the back, but anyone who's been here, seen me in the last four months can tell you one of my biggest, um, priorities when I got here was just to simply pursue relentlessly everyone who went to our church so that I could get to know everyone, know their names. Um, cause I, I didn't want to be in, in, in month two and be asking people's names on Sunday. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. You know, I just, yeah. I want to get to know them. And, um, and, and, and when somebody, when you encourage people and you and you're praying for them and they know you love them, um, everything, almost everything else takes care of itself. And hmm. if I'm wrong, then I'm waiting to be proven wrong. So. <laughs> That's really exciting to hear. And I'm glad you mentioned that. And we can kind of jump into what I 
really wanted to uh, speak about tonight, but it's good to hear about your church and everything. Um, One of these days I'm going to have you come in there, my friend. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm ready. Oh, real quick, before we start, yeah, you and I may cross paths in January. I, I think we will. No, actually, I know we will. Okay, because we've got a big conference. I don't know if you're going to make the conference. You'll probably make the Sunday. I don't know. But the Church of Haynes Creek is sponsoring and putting on a uh, conference called the No Longer Strangers Conference based on mm -hmm. Ephesians 2.19. It's to promote racial reconciliation in, um, in and around the Atlanta area. Mm. Um, and we feel like God has put a special burden on our hearts to do that. So you might make that. I'm not sure. I promise I won't make you a speaker. <laughs> um, okay. But, uh, but, uh, but brother, I look forward to seeing you. I look forward to it too. I look forward to it very much, but I'm glad what you are saying about your church and you're learning to let the word do the heavy lifting. That's uh, a good segue into the reformer who was very, um, who was very inspired by Sola Scriptura himself, Martin Luther. And that's what kind of who I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about Martin Luther and his role as a reformer, but also sort of how we've sort of misunderstood him to a certain degree. I think um, as with a lot of these reformers, I think you've written before how we forget about Calvin as a pastor. And I think we forget about Martin Luther as a pastor too. We forget that this is his pastoral heart. I feel is really what drove Luther to do what he did. And in that sense, I think we've sort of misunderstood what he was really doing. Um, and so I sort of want to talk about that. And it's not lost on me the irony of two Baptists talking about a Lutheran. Uh, uh, but I think it's okay. I think we can I think we can forge through it. And our friends at Christ Hold Fast won't hold us against us if we get something wrong. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to make sure as someone who <laughs> has written on Luther um, – and read Luther fairly extensively. I want to make sure that I would, that everything I say would expecting these Lutheran brothers to, <laughs> to, uh, to listen and to approve. Very good. So I think, um, just starting off, I think, um, you know, a lot of people know colloquially, um, you know, Luther, and his 95 theses and sort of, you know, nailing these to the door of the church of Wittenberg and all those sorts of things. But, um, so let's, uh, let's just start right there. What do, what, in your opinion, what really drove Luther's hammer as is often, uh, pose the question? Um, well, if we just read the theses, we would find that there extremely gospel centered um, and that at the time you talk about uh, uh, kind of committing anachronism and us kind of superimposing our own kind of thoughts upon a historical figure. Um, we want to make sure that we understand that he, his thoughts about um, ecclesiology, um, even about the Pope, I don't think quite yet, he was considering the Pope, the Antichrist, for example. Um, you, we see that he was, wasn't even really um, opposed completely to indulgences uh, or purgatory that I, that I, that I see. Um, his, I mean, it was very, very um, 
early on in his development. Now his, obviously he had a huge problem with or uh, indulgences. He, he believed that uh, he could see what they were doing, what they were peddling. Uh, but I think if you drill down <clears throat> even further, you would see that one of his biggest concerns is, and I think one of the first theses um, is, um, is repentance. Hmm. Uh, he defines early on in the theses that repentance is not uh, simply an action, although it encompasses that, but it, it's a state, it's a posture of heart. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a state of humility before God, um, acknowledging one's sin. And, you know, I want to, I don't want to put words in the, in the, in Luther's mouth. Um, but more or less acknowledging that there is a righteous judgment to be had upon sinners. Uh, and then we fall under that judgment. I think that his, from the beginning, his, if you want to talk about his pastoral heart, uh, very early on in the theses, um, he is concerned that the people understand what repentance is and the nature of faith. Um, mm. I will say, we say, we talk about, you know, as you mentioned about Luther as pastor, he wasn't at first. Um, we have to understand Luther's at a crossroads in human history. Um, even, you know, the University of Wittenberg, for example, was a newly founded university. He was a monk, an Augustinian friar. Um, at that time, you know, you basically, uh, church leadership, if we take a broad perspective of human history, we can see that from the, for the first 500 years of, uh, church history, the, the, the smartest men and the most powerful men ecclesiologically, uh, are bishops, uh, between 500 and I would say 1500, they're monks, they're in monasteries. Those are the, those are the educated men, uh, right around the 16th century or 15th century, uh, right after the Renaissance at the cusp of the enlightenment, you're starting to see the development of the university. Mm. Um, and I mean, what more do we have to embody that than a, a monk who is also teaching at a university? And that's, that's Luther. Mm. Um, so I'd say before he was ever a pastor, um, he was a law school dropout <laughs> who became a monk who failed at his first mass, uh, who started reading his Bible and became a teacher in 1513. He became, he, be, he began his first lecture series in Psalms. Um, I love that by the way, just mm. want to decide. I love that his first series was on Psalms. Um, he was an, you know, it's been said, uh, that, you know, I'm not sure if it was Pelican or Harnack or somebody said, you know, Luther started out as an old Testament pre, uh, lecturer. Then he moved on 1515 and 1516. He was the Romans and Galatians lectures. So all that to say, I think he, I think if we looked at his evolution, if you will, we would start as, there in that, you know, the, we are you familiar with the story where he basically, he contributes his conversion to being struck by lightning, mm -hmm. then goes, becomes a monk, then becomes teacher. Uh, and I think it's then after he establishes himself, not only through the 95 theses, but with other works, uh, obviously the diet of worms and such, he becomes a, a, a hero in, in Northern Germany. Um, you know, he makes appeals to the nobility and he really starts this social revolution with works like the Babylonian captivity, the church with all this starting, I think then he begins to become a parish pastor. 
Um, now I think what you were saying, I don't, I'm not sure when Brad, when you said he is a pastor, I'm not sure if you were necessarily saying professionally, but what you're kind of, what you're wanting to get at is he's always had a pastoral heart. Yes. Uh, and I would agree with that. I think from the beginning, Luther is intensely concerned, uh, with souls. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I think one of his best, um, if I had to say personally, I think one of his best tools he used to shepherd people, uh, was his, 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 uh, heavy sense of spiritual warfare. Uh, I mean, no one wrote more about the devil, both humorously and seriously <laughs> than Luther did. Uh, right. he was always just, and I think this, the German word that he used was unfangtungen, uh, with this sense of foreboding doom, this despair that he had. And of course that was a lot in, 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 uh, he had that because, uh, he didn't understand, grace. You know, he didn't understand justification. You know, finally, when he read Romans 1 16 uh, and he understood imputation, that's when he said all, you know, his end, he was starting to understand that, that despair. Um, and so, uh, but he always had this spiritual sense of just oppression and, um, and that's a, and then we're going to talk later about, um, his theology of the cross, uh, uh, the theology of glory versus theology of the cross. I think that was one of the other, um, big tools he had in his pastoral bag was that distinction. He Luther would never have approved of the social gospel, uh, as the prosperity gospel, because he would say, that's just theology of glory. That's just, uh, that's just people making God into our image and operating according to the world, whereas the theology of theology of the cross takes its interpretation from Scripture, not as the world would see it. For example, we see a man dying ignominiously—yes, I use that word—on um, a cross, whereas theology, the theologian of the cross, would see a dying, weak man and see that as a as strength, as mm. him conquering the the the, um, the forces of evil, and so. Uh, I think two of his biggest pastoral um, weapons, if you will, were one, his deep abiding sense of spiritual warfare, and the other, his theology of the cross that allowed mm -hmm. him to see weakness and allowed him to see um, brokenness and see the work of God in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that helped him a lot, especially in, in articulating gospel truths. So, yes. And I really do want to get into those two diff differing theologies. And I think though, just looking at his early life, you know, we think of Luther as sort of this guy who is undoing, you know, uh, Catholic religion or whatever religious thought. And I think what's interesting about that is he undoes that religion in a very, uh, unexpected manner, just the idea of one of his first theses being the life of a Christian being all about repentance is really opposite to what a lot of, you know, people at the time. And then people even now, uh, think about the Christian life. They think of it as one that doesn't always need repenting, um, they think of it as one as one that is just continually, you know, getting stronger and more independent. But for Luther, it was all about, it was all about dependence. It was, and so for, for that matter, his, his early years were driven by this sort of um, seeking after assurance. 
And mm-hmm. that assurance is what sort of led, I think, to really the formation of, for, I mean, the formation of the Reformation, not to be really Baptist there and alliterate my words, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that assurance. And like you said, it was all about the soul and it was about the heart of the believer in the conscience. You know, he always speaks about that and his, uh, the bondage of the will. Um mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, that's what I see in Luther. It's like this: the opposite a way that you get at assurance is through repentance, through mm-hmm. your own uh, realize realization that you are undone. And for uh, those that were religious then and now, <laughs> it's the opposite way that we think about it. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, assurance is. I, I think you're right, Brad, that we could go so far as to say that the Protestant Reformation was an a, an issue of assurance. Uh, I think that look at, I mean, Martin Luther is a perfect case, um, a test case in what bad theology does to the conscience. Mm. Um, it's a treadmill. That's to this day, the Roman Catholic um, system of indulgence. Well, I guess they don't have indulgences, but imagine indulgences, my goodness, uh, the system of merit, the system of, uh, sacraments, um, uh, which by the way, uh, Luther reduced to two, uh, from seven, um, that whole idea of cooperating with God and having grace infused, that is just so exhausting and wreaked havoc on the conscience. So I think you're right. Assurance. Once he, I mean, one could only, f- one could just try to place themselves in Luther's, um, in his shoes whenever he discovers that it's the righteousness of Christ that's given to him through faith. Uh, and that that is what takes that 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 despair and that doom away, having that assurance. Yeah, I, I think that that's a that's a very good way of putting it. I also say the ninety five theses they are an act. It is in, in in large part an academic exercise. Now, was it strictly academic? No, um, but Luther is a product of his medieval age. Uh, that mm-hmm. is that is a, an academic any that putting posting theses was not. In itself, now the way he did it, putting on the, on the, you know, he did it in a very provocative way, putting on the Wittenberg Castle Church door. Uh, but posting theses was not uh, a novel thing. Um, that was that was an act of debate and something that was engaged in frequently at the university level, at least in the medieval era. So in that sense, he used that. That was a the medium he used was in many sense, uh, a product of medieval scholasticism. Uh, but you're right. When we look further at what he's saying, um, it's not just pointing at the problem of lax licentious, uh, crooked monks. It's not just pointing at the ridiculous nature of indulgences. Um, it's also pointing to, like you said, the heart of a believer um, and, and, and he, one of the things he does immediately is he says, look, this is what penance means. This is what penance doesn't mean. Mm. Um, penance is not put something in the coffer. Um, penance is not do a rosary. And then, you know, it's, it stems some from an internal heart posture. And I, I think you're right there. I, I have no problem whatsoever making this statement. The Protestant Reformation was a struggle 
for biblical assurance. Mm. So I would totally agree with that. And I think what, what I love about Luther is that he constantly points you to an assurance that's outside of you. And so instead of you meriting this assurance through, like you were talking about indulgences or through uh, the sacraments or through penance or through whatever, all the different things that the Catholic church and not just the Catholic church, but even just our religious, you know, old Adam wants to make, find that assurance. in. he constantly points, I like how he, he always refers to it as this alien righteousness, this Amen. outside um, assurance that comes on you. And that's why he, his emphasis on this imputed righteousness, this grace that comes to you outside of you, I think is so, um, not just, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's radical in that sense, but it's so formational. And that's why I think it caught on so well is because it was deeply and just like, um, in your piece that went, um, live today on, talking about reformation as recovery, it really recovered the truth of the gospel. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. Wow. I love your shout out to my piece. That was really awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And once you, you know, to your point, Brad, if we step back, doesn't Luther, doesn't he operate in dichotomies? Hmm. Think about it. Theologian of the cross, theologian of glory. There's, he actually writes a piece called the two kinds of righteousness, alien righteousness and what he calls proper righteousness. Uh, simul, what's the Latin? Simul justus et peccator at simultaneously just and sinner. I mean, it's like part of, I'm not sure if anybody's ever written on that. That'd be a good blog. Um, is, him, he, he, Luther operating according to these dualities. Um, I mean, you want to talk about radical. I think that, uh, you know, telling, uh, telling someone who has only known through the Catholic system that they have to gain righteousness inherently by eating bread, by, by being washed in water, by sipping wine that turns to blood, telling that person that it is no, you're no longer inherent. It, it's, it doesn't work like that, but that you can actually still be a sinner, but be accounted and reckoned righteous by faith. Um, I think that all of his theology can be driven around a lot of those dichotomies that he mm-hmm. establishes because it's in his mind. I mean, even, okay, there you go. Law and gospel. I mean, look, what, what, wouldn't our friends, where are they at? I forgot where they at. Um, uh, not white horse, but your, uh, your Lutheran buddies at what, what Christ hold fast. And- yes. <laughs> Christ hold fast. I mean, if they're listening to this, they'd be amening right now because that law gospel dichotomy is not shared as exaggeratively, uh, by his later, uh, covenant theologian descendants. Um, you know, that that's part of what perhaps the Puritans did not make that law gospel distinction quite as heavily as he did. Uh, so I think that's one thing that's very profound in his thought, um, is in what's so radical about Luther was not simply that he was able to challenge the institutions of his day. Um, but that he was, I mean, he's just so darn biblical about (laughs) everything he's doing because he's a lover of scripture um, and to your point, it's just, that's what makes him potent is, you know, the last, I think I wrote in the article today, um, the last 
uh, draft of the, the edict of worms, uh, the Holy Roman emperor says, uh, he will accept no authority. The, the, the Holy Roman emperor writes this man named Luther will accept no authority, but, but, but scripture. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, it was clear even to his opponents that this man, and what does he tell at the, the diet of worms? My conscience is bound to the word of God. Uh, I mean, if you, you could be a fly on the wall to hear him tell that and shake defiantly. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's what drove him, um, is his faithfulness to scripture. And, um, in the sense that what he was doing wasn't novel, it was already just laid that laid out there for him. Yep. Um, so anyway, well, and I think I love that you pointed out those dichotomy dichotomies, because I think it is those dichotomies that really point us to one of, I think, his most profound, which is what we were talking about earlier, the theologian of glory versus the theologian of the cross. And I, I really just love, um, well, and also about dichotomies is because going back to them, it really brings us back into that idea of tension and the tension between, you know, uh, simultaneously saint and sinner and and simultaneously preaching uh, law and gospel, those sorts of things. And for Luther, it wasn't about um, dispelling that tension necessarily. It was almost about embracing it. And and that's, I think, where we get to the theology of the cross. It's really embracing the tension that right now in this life, you are both a saint and a sinner, and your assurance is the hope that Jesus will make you fully saint. He will sanctify your whole body. And I think um, that really points us to the theology of the cross is the idea of suffering that tension in the here and now. And so uh, if you can, let's just sort of get into that and sort of let's sort of uh, walk our, some of our listeners who are maybe familiar with these sort of concepts once the difference between a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. Um, I would, um, I mean, theologian of the glory, uh, functionally one is operating according to what they see and what they experience in the world. And one is operating according to what they read and what they believe uh, according to the word of God, that external word, I think in one of his, uh, one of his, uh, lectures, I forgot Michael Horton was quoting this, I believe somewhere where his, in one of his lectures in, I forgot where, where it was, but he, in his lectures, he says, um, that the spirit only operates according to the external word. Mm. Um, that, that externality was huge for him. Of course, we see that external too, with the alien righteousness, that, that same external theme. Um, but the word informed all of what the theologian of the cross, uh, knew and, and lived because the theologian of the cross, let's take a modern example. Uh, for instance, a theologian of glory sees, a man who doesn't make a lot of money, who works a uh, shift job, who doesn't um, necessarily look uh, handsome. He's not necessarily successful according to the world. Um, maybe no one really has ever heard of him. The theologian of the theologian of glory would say, well, that man, isn't successful and beloved by God. 
he's taking his visible cues and, and, and adding up all these worldly things and, and, and equating that with uh, disfavor with God. Whereas the theologian of the cross would see, oh, that man reads his Bible. That man puts his faith in Christ. That man follows hard after Jesus and serves his wife and loves his family well. Even though the world would say that man isn't successful, the theologian of the cross says this man believes in the gospel, therefore he is blessed. And so I think a lot of it, I just think to, I think for me, practically, if we could flesh out the difference with theology, of the glory and theology of the cross, um, one, it centers around the cross because the theolo- the theologian of glory would look upon, um, a dejected, disrespected, spat upon crucified savior and go, who in the world is that guy? Whereas a theologian of the cross sees victory and triumph. Um, and I just think today, if you want to look and see what a theologian of glory looks like, look at uh, prosperity, look at TD Jakes, look at Joel Steen, look at these guys. I mean, uh, they're operating according to the world. They take earthly principles and they think that the kingdom of God measures success and prosperity in the same way that the world does. And the theologian of the cross knows that that's just simply not the case. And we see that. And I think the reason he's called the theologian of the cross is the, that theology is most epitomized by a man dying on the cross and conquering the entire world. Um, And so I think that's, if I had to flesh that one out, that tension, I think you had a really good point earlier, Brad, it's not that he's simply living with it. It's that he's reveling in the tension. He loves that. I mean, he just, and I just have to think he probably just reveled in this theology, this theology of the cross in the midst of a archaic medieval Roman Catholic system, which said the Pope has the power. Therefore he is most blessed by God. Hmm. And he's looking at the Pope. And I think by the time he writes the Babylonian captivity of the church, he's convinced that the Pope is the antichrist. (laughs) And, um, by that time he's saying, you're holding these people hostage and you're holding them hostage in three primary ways. Um, one, you're keeping withholding the cup from the laity Two, you're feeding them this heretical doctrine known as transubstantiation. Uh, and three, um, you're, you're, you're insinuating that the mass is a sacrifice of Christ. Um, and for him, he's saying, you know, I think Martin Luther, you know, I think he, in one, he's got to live with attention, but two, he's got to be looking at this Catholic church going, cause there's a difference between living with tension and then just believing nonsense. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and of course later on, I'd love to get into the, talking about how we superimpose our own thoughts uh, upon historical figures. I would love to get into later, perhaps if we have time about how would Luther perceive evangelicals today? Hmm. Because I'm going to tell you, if he treated Zwingli the way he did at Marburg colloquy and said that he could not call Zwingli one of the, one of the, and a lot of people call him the third man of the reformation if he debated Zwingli over the nature of the Lord's Supper and disagreed with him, and I would say most evangelicals agree with, with the line with Zwingli in, in, in taking a, a memorial view 
of the Lord's Supper. If that's the case and he could not call Zwingli brother, I would think, I think in Carl Truman, actually in his on Luther on the Christian life, Carl Truman actually insists if we're, if we really get serious, Luther probably wouldn't consider most evangelicals today Christians <laughs> because the Lord's Supper was that. And I think to get back around back to your point, even the tension of the mass, um, this man who taught us justification by faith alone is the same guy that said that you've got to come back and get the grace from the bread. Now keep you, we got to remember he didn't, Luther never dispensed and departed completely away from going to uh, the Eucharist for grace. Um, that was one thing I didn't understand. And then there's another tension that he lived with was basically fighting for Pez. You know, well, it, he, he fought for the common religion, empowering the laity, yet he suppressed the peasants revolt. He treated Anabaptist horribly. Um, and I think, I think to your point, Brad, the tension in Luther's mind, of course, we're not even going to, we're not even going to talk about the way he treated Jews in the last three years of his life. Um, which a brilliant article, by the way, in, in the gospel coalition on that today, um, to your point, Brad, I think the tension for Luther made him a genius and made him the world's first Protestant. But it also in some ways also, um, was sometimes his weakness. Hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's, I, I'm really fascinated by your, um, insight into that, just the idea of we are imposing our preconceived notions about these historical figures. Let's, let's, let's get into that. Let's kind of, uh, um, let's kind of stay there for a little bit because I think that's really interesting because we sort of view a lot of these, well, not sort of, we do, we do view these, these figures with 21st century glasses that sort of reconfigure, I think, a lot of the things that they were saying and doing, um, to certain degrees. And so, um, how, why, why do you think it's important that we go back and, and sort of put ourselves back into that time frame before we start making all of these statements about them? Um, this is where, uh, contextualization is important. This is where I, this is, this is where, this is my wheelhouse, man. This, this is, this is history. Um, <laughs> this is what I'm um, doing my dissertation, for example, I'm, I'm, uh, I have my last PhD seminar next semester. Uh, I didn't, I don't think I mentioned that I'm, I'm a, uh, senior doctoral candidate at the new Orleans Baptist theological seminary. They've allowed me, they've allowed me to finish my last two classes, uh, uh, via Skype. Um, so I'm appreciative to them for that. Um, and I'm maybe, I may be working on Edwards because let's face it, I'm just obsessed with Edwards. <laughs> um, and, but a lot's been done on Edwards. Um, but I'm currently thinking about do, writing my dissertation. Uh, I, I published an article uh, last year, actually this year, uh, at Yale University at their Jonathan Edwards Center on uh, Edwards and Edwards's influence on, on Southern Baptist uh, Richard Furman. Mm -hmm. um, and Richard Furman, 
is and was by many called this great guy, Basil Manley Jr., for example, who's a Baptist, um, whose family ended up starting Southern Seminary. Um, you know, he said he was, this Vern was the wisest man he ever knew. Um, and we also know that Richard Furman was someone who not only endorsed slavery, but thought it was completely biblical and that the Bible actually prescribed it. Um, and so when we get to know these historical figures, we have to understand them on their own terms. Um, for example, there was an article that came out, uh, just to finish that thought with Richard Furman, we're not excusing him, uh, and, and the evils that he took part in. This is a, this is a part of a larger discussion right now about, for example, Jonathan Edwards had slaves. Um, you know, what do we do with all these guys who seemingly, you know, what do we do with Luther in, in the, he wrote, he wrote, uh, the Jews and their lies three, I think, uh, three years before his death, horrible things. What do we do with that? Um, you know, you know what I would say? I think we go back to one of Luther's principles, which is simultaneously just and center. Um, <laughs> this man is flawed. Um, we're not, we don't need to, and Luther is, is an enigmatic figure because I'm going to tell you, if someone in my church used the language he did against (laughs) the language that he used, uh, sometimes, uh, against the Pope or whatnot, if, if someone in my church used that, and I saw that written on Facebook, brother, I'd, I'd meet that brother and and, and, and show him his error. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, he told me, he told me, or, uh, who was telling me the other day, something that Luther wrote, uh, Luther had a big, uh, feud with uh, a lot. A lot of people don't know about this. Luther had a big feud with, with King Henry the eighth in hmm. England, um, because Luther wanted to take the sacraments down from seven to two. And, and, uh, you know, he called, King Henry the eighth, uh, an ass. He said, you have no, he says you have no, I think I, I could be wrong. He said something to the degree of you have no more knowledge of the scriptures. You have no more ability to change God's principles than an ass can play the harp. I think <laughs> is what he said. I mean, it's just, just in, 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 in part of you is disgusted. And the other parts, like the creativity that goes into these insults <laughs> is unbelievable. Um, but you know, I, I guess it, to, to back to your point, um, history. And I, and I want to use this example really quickly with the gospel coalition article that came in, that came out today that I really uh, would endorse about, uh, Luther and the Jews. He's this man says, we are to celebrate Luther. We are not to, um, I think his words were something like revere him. We can celebrate Luther, but we're not to worship Luther. Um, history keeps us humble and allows us to understand that all men and it really, if what history does one thing, it shines a big old spotlight on Luther's principle of simul hustus et peccator, um, that we're, we can be justified and the sinner. I do believe that Jonathan Edwards um, is in glory. 
Um, he had two slaves, had, had maybe more than that. Um, you know, I believe that Martin Luther, who said horrible things toward the end of his life, and, and honestly, we know and have evidence now that, that, that proves that some, not all, but there were some Nazis, uh, Nazi officers who were familiar with um, Luther's writings and one who even verbally, explicitly um, said that he was uh, that he was motivated by those writings. I and mean, that's just horrible. Um, but history would say that these men are imperfect and that they can st- and that God used them in his sovereign grace. He used imperfect vessels uh, to save more imperfect vessels. And so I think history keeps us humble. I also think that our, our 21st century lens, uh, we don't want to engage in chronological snobbery as what CS Lewis would say. Um, we don't want to look and think that we're somehow, uh, not prone and susceptible to the same ignorance and the same fallenness. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, in order to avoid, because I, I think I know a lot of people who tried to say things about Jonathan Edwards just aren't true. Uh, they want to they want to they want to talk about Jonathan Edwards like he was John Calvin. Well, John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards are two different people. <laughs> you can't just slap or, or talk about how you know you know these guys who who know Wayne Grudem and they they read Ligonier articles and suddenly they think you know. Um, Jonathan Edwards, you know, in, in, in all of his Princeton, um, reformed theologians were homeboys. No, I mean, Jonathan Edwards didn't get along with a lot of those guys. I mean, or, or, or I guess vice versa. They didn't always approve of Jonathan Edwards theology. My point being, um, history, if we do our homework, um, it lets us empathize with people instead of just using them for whatever theological point we want to make. Uh, the work of the pastor and the work of the historian is to find why people did what they did. And at the end of the day, if you do that, you start to have empathy and understanding, and it gives you wisdom so that when those things pop up in our own churches, we can go, oh, wow, Martin Luther battled that, or Calvin uh, wrote about that. Um, and, and I think that helps us. So doing we don't want to just treat these theological figures like just absorb their theology and move on. Uh, I I would go so far as to say it's almost, it is virtually impossible to understand Martin Luther's theology with, without understanding his existential personal life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, all right, that, that's, that's the end of my monologue there. (laughs) Well, no, and that sort of brings it back to, um, the, 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 the insurance conversation we were yeah talking about assurance it, it it really brings it full circle but to your point though um I've, I've been thinking about this recently especially if we want to make this podcast super relevant we can just talk about it and that is this idea of um you know across the nation um you know tearing down these sort of statues of southern figures Oh man, we're 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 hitting it all today. <laughs> well, and it just reminds me, and I, I've just had this thought recently. This, uh, and we can get into the you know merits of doing that or not, and if there are any. My personal opinion. And by is the way, I've got one. I can, I can run from my house right now, and it would take me 
less than five minutes to run to the Confederate statue in the center of our town. Hmm. Just to give you a little context, continue. Hmm. Well, I've just been thinking about this just because we so often want to sanitize our history that I think we forget what that history is supposed to do for us. Just talking about Luther and talking about Furman, talking about any historical figure that you want, none of them is without fault. None of them is without error. And I think the idea of sanitizing and whitewashing that error is to, in my opinion, is to really make the gospel impotent. Because what the gospel does is it speaks into those darknesses and it speaks into those errors and it says, God used this person anyways. God used the darkness, and he also infused, well, not infused, but he imputed his light into onto that person and used that person in a mighty way. And so, in my opinion, um, when we choose to sanitize our history, I think we're nullifying really what the gospel is supposed to do, which speaks into those dark corners of our past as men and women and it it speaks into those places and it shows us the hope of grace which comes and meets us where we are as sinners and people who err amen brother uh, i think you're and isn't and, and to your point isn't that precisely what luther did not want do you, do you think Luther would want, um, matter of fact, I know he didn't. There's no way Luther wanted a church called the Lutheran church. There's not, they, they developed that later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was a, what he was a reformer. He wanted to, he believed in the one holy, uh, hold on Catholic apostolic church. Um, you know, Yaroslav Pelican says that in many ways, Luther was more Roman Catholic than many of his Roman Catholic opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he believed in the Roman Catholic church. And to your point, when we hero worship and we sanitize, um, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, and I, in the reform, the reform community, man, we love us some heroes, don't we? <laughs> we do. Yeah. I mean, and, and I fall and I'm not, and let me be careful. I'm not saying, cause I'm gonna tell you, I'm going to be at T4G. I know that. And I love T4G. Uh, but I'm telling you, man, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm 31 years old. I don't, I don't get, uh, you know, I don't get giddy anymore when I see people, uh, maybe Michael Jordan, maybe, maybe LeBron. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but if I saw, Sorry. I'm sorry, Brad, John Piper, you know, or if I saw somebody like, uh, David Platt or somebody, you know, walking by, if I saw John MacArthur walking by, I'd go, Whoa, like that's, you know, and I have a temptation. I think reformers, the reform community has a temptation to not even historically, but in the present day, uh, you know, that's why I encouraged by you, Brad, you're not just reading an article. You're, you're, you're scrutinizing that article against the word of God. I think historically we don't want to sanitize, um, because we know that, you know, if, if the, if the doctrine of sin does one thing, it should affirm that every single historical figure we're reading is fallen. 
and Mm -hmm. uh, is not worthy of worship. And of course, Luther being the one who, and Calvin, who were both convinced that the Pope was the Antichrist or the the Catholic Church, have you, um, they would say, look, don't, don't venerate the Pope and don't venerate me. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's another thing I think we wanted to, I just wanted to to mention is um, how refreshing it is uh, to read Luther talk about his wife, his kids, to, to read Luther talk about his personal life. That is the, that is the one thing I was so frustrated and have always frustrated with Calvin. Doesn't make Calvin worse. Doesn't make him bad or a bad theologian, but my goodness, Calvin didn't talk at all about his personal life (laughs) at all. I mean, Luther is, is talking about when he farts, (laughs) Uh, you know, it's just his, he's so inviting. I mean, you just, you're, you really, I remember, uh, I think Carl Truman in his book, Luther on the Christian life and that crossway series, um, that they do, uh, you know, he, I think Carl Truman even says, he says, when I go and I want to study after, for example, Galatians, um, I'm not going to go to Luther's commentary on the Galatians. It's probably not the the best commentary. Uh, he says, but it's, it's, it's feeding to the soul. I mean, it's, it's just, he, Luther had such a way. I mean, uh, I think, uh, Russell Moore the other day just tweeted and said that he was, he was walking down the street reading, uh, Luther's, uh, freedom of the Christian. Uh, everything he wrote was so pastoral and it was mixed in with little personal anecdotes and stories. And you're like, you feel like you knew Luther. Uh, that's one thing I love is even, you talk about sanitizing. If someone discloses themselves in such a self-deprecating, humble way that Luther did, you just come to love the guy. Yep. Uh, that's why I think Protestants everywhere love Luther. It's not because we thought he was a great Christian. I mean, he was, he was a saint. Uh, he was simultaneously just and sinner, but he was also just a very open, very forward person. And that's just endearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing I have, um, uh, I've always wondered, for example, John Owen, uh, who was a Puritan, he, he, he outlived all 11 of his children mm. and never once wrote about it. And I'm like, I'm not saying that he fell short in any way. I'm just saying, you know, you and I are bloggers, Brad, like we write about our lives, man. You know, I write about Kelly, you write about Natalie, you, we post about Lydia and Ruby and Roman. And, you know, how do you not talk about, you know, your personal life? And, you know, obviously, um, we don't know all that Calvin preached and, you know, John Owen was, was largely an academic. Um, but Luther, I think he stands apart I think he, I think personally, existentially, pastorally, he had more in common with Augustine than he did with the Calvin. Mm-hmm. Augustine and his confessions, confessions is one of the, is one of the church is one of the first, firsthand accounts of testimonies ever mm-hmm. uh, in the church. And it comes from Augustine, the same guy that gave us, um, you know, the, um, you know, who condemned Pelagius. And I mean, so I think, I think, uh, August in an Augustinian sense, um, Luther was an endearing theologian because he was both existential and theological. Yep. Well, and that's kind of why I have been drawn to him, but also I think just going back to our 
just a small discussion on this idea of sanitizing history. And I think that in an unironic sense, that brings us full circle again back to this idea of tension, is the idea of looking at history with the eyes of the gospel sees both the saintliness of these people and also the sinfulness of these people. And it helps us to, I think, better understand the gospel. And I think if we were only to realize all of Luther's accomplishments without some of his faults, I think that would sort of undermine the very gospel that he was a proponent of. And I think that's what um, is hard for us because even we do not like to see or to, um, we, we don't like seeing the faults of our, you know, even our contemporaries, and we want to sanitize that. It's like you were saying, we, we want to whitewash that from our memories, so to speak. Um, but I think we can't, and I think we shouldn't. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, I just wrote an, uh, a chapter in a book, forthcoming book, called uh, Jonathan Edwards and the Dark Side of the Enlightenment. And um, my buddy, John Lowe, who is the editor, one of the editors, he's writing about Jonathan Edwards' view of slavery. Uh, I'm writing about Jonathan Edwards' patriarchalism. I mean, he, Jonathan Edwards was an old world kind of guy. He, he didn't, uh, he, he, our modern sense of democracy did not appeal to him. Um, you know, and that's, that's pretty tame, but to your point, I think, uh, there are some very, very disturbing things. Some, I mean, relatively speaking, not very many, but, you know, Luther did write some very offensive, hurtful, sinful things. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, if we are, affirming what he wrote in, for instance, uh, bondage of the will, then we would understand that sin still, it does not have dominion. Um, but we still are waiting to attain the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Um, that's right. And, uh, I think you're right. I think, uh, like Philippians three, for example, he starts us out saying that we have that righteousness from God through faith. Then he says, we got to run the race. Uh, and only then, at the end, when we attain the resurrection, will our, will our bodies be transformed? I think that what what gives me hope is knowing that Martin Luther, if if Martin, let me put it this way, if Martin Luther's not in heaven, um, I don't think I have a shot. <laughs> um, I, and yeah. I, I can, I think I have no problem saying that. I, that, <laughs> that guy, uh, just the piety and the faith uh, that man that he poured out. Have you ever heard, have you ever read his preface to the Galatians? Oh, yes. My yes. goodness. It's one mean, of my favorite pieces of writing. That is just, uh, I mean, just so, it's soul care. I mean, it's, mm. and it's written in such a way that it's, it's both edifying and humiliating. Um, and, uh, and of course going back to the, it's, I mean, that law gospel theme is just traced all throughout it, but, mm. um, but yeah, to your point, um, we can't sanitize history. Um, but we shouldn't also, but we should also not, um, 
we should not, we should also not, uh, stand over them as if we are, right. uh, on a hill. Yeah. Um, and I think right now, um, the, uh, zeitgeist, if you will, the, the spirit of the age right now in 21st century Western culture is to, um, is to stand over these historical figures in some sense of superiority. And of course that just takes us right back to this, this debate over these statues and whatnot. I, 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 and we, this is not even, I I am a former Confederate reenactor. I have family um, who fought in the civil war. Um, I love history and Southern history. Um, but I also have two black children. Um, and, uh, I think that Luther, that's a, that's a, that's a neat question. What would Luther think about this? Um, I I don't know. He's a magisterial reformer. Let's keep that in mind. And he didn't treat Baptists too well. Um, at least Anabaptists and, uh, I would say the one thing, because Luther, you know, he dealt with the Peasants' Revolt. Uh, he dealt with Karlstadt when he came home. He, he, he really associated memorialism in Lord's Supper theology with memorial theology in Lord's Supper. He associated that with social revolution um, because he saw it uh, in Karlstadt. He saw it in, in, uh, in others. And I think that I don't know what he would think about these issues, Um I would like to think that he would put no stumbling block in the way of the gospel. Um, but I know that at all costs, just because I see it demonstrated repeatedly in his life, he, he would feel that the two kingdoms, well, there you go. Another dichotomy. Um, the two kingdoms theory, his political theory, his political theology, uh, he would see that the secular element of the, those two kingdoms, he would think that that, that it, whatever happened, that the government was there to suppress any uh, and all um, elements of anarchy and division. And so mm-hmm. I, th- I think that there's another way that Luther wouldn't fit in in our time. He would probably – Luther would have no um, – he would have no uh, time or patience for um, – for democracy or, um, or this, this, this Western sense of tolerance, um, that, that would just not appeal to Luther. He's a, he's a magisterial reformer. And that's another reason as a Southern Baptist, um, his two kingdoms theory is, is similar, but is definitely not, um, identical to the Baptist, uh, American sense of separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I, that is, that's an interesting question. What Luther would do. Um, I, I don't know what he would do, but I, I know that whatever we, you know, whatever, whenever we look at Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or these guys, we have to understand that they're reformers, uh, but they're magisterial reformers. And, uh, that is in many ways, uh, what keeps many evangelicals from 
completely um, touting these guys. It's, you know, we just, we look at Calvin and we go, man, he just, you know, I had a, at a Southern seminary professor one time, he goes, he goes, we know that pa- we, Calvin's not infallible. It's just that he's, he's right all the time. <laughs> uh, and the one thing that the exception to that is always one of, I mean, there are many, but one of the big exceptions to that is always the fact that, you know, how, how did he just, he just didn't understand civil authority in the, in the evils that could be done by making religion uh, into um, the civil, the civil structure. You know, we, as Baptists, we, we look at that and we go, didn't he understand that religion cannot be impressed, that the conscience is inviolable? Uh, well, no, he didn't understand that. Uh, at least history doesn't appear that, that he did. Um, and so I can say this today, going back to sanitizing history, I can say this, I think John Calvin's theology is some of the most sublime theological writings that have ever come out of any sinner's hand. Um, but I can also say this, um, you know, when you, when you, when you burn someone for, for denying the Trinity, um, you know, there is something in the theology that needs amending. Um, and, uh, and when Luther treats the Anabaptists as he did, um, we can definitely say this, that these men were special. They were used by God. They were mighty. Um, they were geniuses. However, they were also sinful. That's right. Well, it's sort of as we bring this whole thing kind of full circle and come to a close, so to speak, just circling back to what we sort of talked about at the beginning, which wasn't really on my docket, but I loved it anyways, is this idea of pastoral ministry and coming back to Luther as a pastoral pastoral writer. Let's talk about quickly, how do you think um, Luther has and will continue to inform you as a pastor in the sense of just like we were talking about giving assurance to um, people who are seeking people who are seeking something, maybe they don't even know what they're seeking, but I think, well, I'll just tell you, I think Luther's ministry to me, uh, despite all of his flaws is the, the greatest ministry to me is his pursuit of assurance and how that informs me as a believer, which had then is lended me the ability to help, um, others find that same assurance in what we know as the gospel. Did you, let me ask you this real quick, Brad. Did you grow up in a fundamentalist home? I sure did. Did you grow up in an environment in your church environment where the tendency was not to stress justification, but to stress perseverance and works. Uh, it was never. Yeah. It wasn't blatant. It wasn't. Yes. It wasn't spoken. It was understood. So um, no, no one was going around touting imputation. <laughs> no, definitely. Well, no. <laughs> there just to, just to kind of, I feel like I know you more now <laughs> because now I know why assurance is so precious. Mm. And now I know while, why Luther appeals to you on such a level is because I mean, my goodness, 
Roman Catholics may have had an absolutely aberrant system of theology, but they certainly don't have a patent on works-based theology. <laughs> That's definitely true. And uh, I think that we'd be remiss right now if in all this talk about Protestant Catholics, if we don't, we don't want to just, we don't, we don't, we're not Catholic bashing. We mourn for Catholics. Mm. Um, we, we mourn for them. They're on this exhausting, never ending treadmill. And we just want them to get off and discover the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Um, that tells me a lot about you and the way you resonate. I will say, wink, wink. If you were raised in, and as many of my brothers were, if you were raised in reformed culture, you were raised in the opposite in some ways. Antinomianism held sway. Um, you and I come from different. I came from the opposite. I came from now. Okay. Let me clarify. I did. I was not raised in reformed culture. Um, but I was raised where it was all about grace. We were not touting imputation, but we were often, it was always about love and, and that's good. Just like your fundamentalist upbringing. One thing y'all had was sanctification and living according to the law. I mean, that was the law of law of Christ, hopefully. Um, but when I, that's why Martin Luther appeals to me, but Jonathan Edwards, the nature of true virtue and the religious affections appeals to me because I was raised in a home and in a, well, in a church rather where there was so much on do there. Sorry. There was so much on love and be that it was never about do. Um, and I think the best thing to go back to your question, I think the best thing for me, um, is his boldness to stand on the word of God. Mm -hmm. Um, I get, I'm a real, have you ever heard me preach? I, I have. have. Yes. Have you I really? I, oh. I listened to your sermons, buddy. Oh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> I, um, I get pretty passionate. I will say if you've learned, if you've listened to me since I've been sermon, we don't right now, we don't have a, we don't have a, uh, sound booth. So right now, uh, I record all my sermons on my phone. Hmm. And so if it, if it feels I'm familiar like with the, uh, with the reality of doing that. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. So sound, sometimes I feel if it's, if I did forgot to put it underneath, it sounds like I'm banging my phone. Um, <laughs> but I, I just, his passion, his passion for me is what, I mean, let's think about this. I think of it like this and I, I there are flaws if you if you dig too deep, but there is the difference between the Marines and the army is many things, but the, the Marines come in and they come in and they just do work. They just come in and they bang it up. They come in, they take, they destabilize, they penetrate. The army comes in, they organize, they occupy. Um, now obviously both do both, you know, but that's, that's kind of how I've always seen the difference between Luther and Calvin. Luther did not have an institutes. He didn't have a systematic theology. His writings are all occasional writings. <laughs> um, Luther, Luther was the wrecking ball. 
he came in and it took someone with his personality to come in and shake his fist at the, at the I just don't see Calvin standing up at the diet of worms. I just don't. And Luther was so bold and, and, and what must've just ticked them off was he was so darn articulate. Uh, he was just so smart. He was a genius. Most people think, uh, and so was Calvin, but personality wise, God raised up a Martin Luther for just a, such a time as that, because it took, now, obviously we know there were political forces, Frederick, the wise and, you know, uh, in Saxony. And, you know, he was one of the people that voted in, uh, the Holy Roman emperor. And so he was protected because he was in Northern Germany and things like that. But personally, it took somebody like that. And then once you had refer, that's why today, when people talk about reform theology, more often they talk about Genevan theology, because it was Calvin who came in and codified, categorized, laid down the template and said, this is, this is what we reform theology is. And so I think it's important for me, I think just to answer your question, the most important pastorally for me is that God the word is most important. And he stood on that, but, and this may not sound very reformed, but Brad, your personality, God made your personality for a reason. You're laid back, but you love LeBron. <laughs> you're a, you're a family man, but you're a good writer. You joke, you watch star Wars, all those things God made for you. And that's you. And no, that is not any substitute. I think uh, where we get into the trouble is a lot of times this emotional, um, this very experience-driven, very uh, nominal Christianity sometimes thinks that those traits are what substitutes for real ministry, and we know that's not true. But if you're doing the work, the work of the pastor, and you're preaching his word, you're being faithful over time. If you come out, God, if you're being faithful, God will bring those personality traits and he'll use them for his glory. I think what happened was in seminary, I kind of started to think that I was just the mind and it was always, I had to be smarter than everybody. But when I got into pastoral ministry, I figured out that, yes, he is going to use my, my brain and, and, but he's also using my personality, my love for people. Uh, and I think that's why people rallied around Luther so much. Northern Germany still to this day. I mean, you go to Germany, it's Lutheran. I think people loved him. He was a hero because they loved being around him. And they, he was, he was infectious. You know, you either hated him or you loved him. Um, and so I, I know that's not a, not, I know that's kind of a theological answer, but um, standing on the, his, his commitment to the centrality of the word and supremacy of Christ, but also someone who was bold enough to let us in and see his warts and, mm -hmm. and just be a sinner um, is something that's really encouraging for me because honestly, man, and we could, we could say this for another podcast. I think sometimes our, our reformed brothers are just too uptight and afraid <laughs> to be vulnerable. Um, take off your theological academic hat for a second and just because you want to tell a testimony or just because you want to have a theme sermon that's not exactly expositional one week doesn't make you an Armenian. Um, <laughs> you can be, you know, use your personality. Don't make it the thing. But, um, you know, I, I think there's 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 room to be yourself. Um, obviously, we want to make sure that that's not uh the self, but, 
Um, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but, but, but that, that's kind of something I've just always liked Luther is because he's so darn endearing. And I pray that I pray that I have the same boldness. And like you said, the boldness to be vulnerable and the boldness to continue to stand and believe in the grace of the gospel. Well, brother, I've really appreciated this time with you. And this has been, well, for one, it's been super informative, but it's also been super encouraging and enlightening for me. And I hope uh, that some of my listeners will uh, think the same thing. So thank you so much. Uh, you're my first returning guest and you, this will definitely not be the last yeah. time you're on here. <laughs> definitely not the last time you're on here. I think perhaps next time we can, we'll see if we can uh, do more. Um, the merits of film and faith we can uh, talk about that or something did we go an entire podcast without talking about lebron james i think we did wow i'll have to correct that next time my goodness and we're going to talk about Kyrie because i want to know what you think about Kyrie. <laughs> we'll definitely do that all right man. well brother i love i love you and i hope you have a great evening and uh, thank you so much for coming on love you too brad Thanks again to Abby for taking the time to come on the show today. I pray you found this conversation as enriching as I did. Be sure to connect with him on Twitter and go check out his blog, Vernacular. You can find all those links in the show notes. And that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for listening along. If you like what you just heard, be sure to follow the show on Twitter. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and now we're on Google Play. Thanks again to the Christian Standard Bible for sponsoring the show. And thank you, as always, for listening, commenting, and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings.